0: We're going to continue on with our study in Judges, and we're going to look at Gideon this morning. While you're turning there, I want to start with this: that um, that human beings uh, love stories. It's one of the unique things about a person. It makes us people uh, is that we look for stories. Uh, we will make stories out of anything. Uh, we look for narrative. We we look to grab. What some people on the outside, perhaps, of your particular life, may look at in terms of the events that happen to you—these little threads, things that may be insignificant to other people—we will string them together because we're looking for meaning, and we're—and—and and it's the reason that we love story. One of the things about a story is, story always contains meaning. Okay, and people are looking for meaning. Uh, you are, I am, the people, the people out there. Uh, and and it's not just an American thing it's everywhere it's a people thing we're looking for meaning and because we're looking for meaning uh, one of the places that we look closest for meaning is always story story contains meaning and we're just we're looking for narrative we build narratives out of our lives Uh, we look at the long arc arc of our life and we want to see the narrative in it because we know somewhere in there there's the meaning we're looking for that existential truth it's one of the reasons that um, novels will almost always be more powerful than sermons um one of my favorite writers is C.S. Lewis. And, of course, a lot of you guys have read C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis preached probably what a lot of people consider one of the best sermons ever. And it's a sermon called The Weight of Glory. Anybody ever read The Weight of Glory? All right. He also wrote The Weight of Glory another way, and it's called The Chronicles of Narnia. Now, how many of you all have read that? See, yeah, that's the thing. Um, I love both. But there's, there's something about a story that's able to capture and hold meaning better than just telling. Showing is almost always better than telling. And in the church, we've made um, we've become masters at telling rather than showing. And we, we want to recapture some of that. So it's one of the reasons I really love uh, the Bible in particular. The Bible is this this arc of a story, and it's God's story, and it's, and it's woven together. Now, there's a particular kind of story that we really like. Um, and you like it and I like it. Um, people who are not even Americans like this sort of story. Um, any sort of story where there's an underdog who wins or a loser like a one, like a mini like someone who just loses their whole life and then they win at the end. We love that. We love comebacks, we love we love long shots, we love underdogs and we love losers who turn to winners. And the other thing that we really, really, really like, is we really like it when the story contains a bit of justice. If, if at the end of this, some sort of a turnaround, if at the end of the, a long shot or a, a comeback or or an underdog, if at the end of the underdog story, there's a bit of justice, then we really, really, really like that, right? We love those kinds of stories. Um, how many of you guys remember when... when uh, at the end of Karate Kid, you guys remember? At the end of Karate Kid, when Daniel Larusso Crane kicks that guy from the Cobra Dojo in the face, you were on the edge of your couch and you were screaming. Like, and intellectually, you know this isn't real, but you don't care, right? I know that that's not Daniel Larusso. I know that's not his real name. I know that's not Mister Miyagi. They're just they're just actors on a stage, but it doesn't matter because at the end of it, when the Cobra Dojo guy gets it and the chops, you're happy. Why? It's a comeback. It's an underdog, it's a loser, becoming a winner, and then there's some justice executed at the end. We love those kinds of stories. Um, I'm not quite old enough to remember this, but people have told me that in 1980, like the USA hockey team, when they beat the Russians, I was alive, I was just too little to remember it, but most sports writers agree that that is the greatest sports comeback of all time, that hockey game. It It was for Olympic gold, it was... Not non-professional um, college hockey players from the United States who had barely ever even played together, and they're out on the ice with professional Russians, and they take it to them. And we love that. We love this idea that the underdogs win. Um, most of us don't remember that, but probably a lot of us in the room remember 1992 when Christian Laettner hits that shot. You know why that hurts so bad? It it hurts so bad because. The underdog didn't win, and the bad guys won. <laughs> Duke was favored, and they won, and it sticks in your crawl because you're like, this is not how the story is supposed to go. I remember um, I was just a little guy, and not little, but smaller guy in 92, and I remember when Sean Woods comes through the run- lane and hits that floater with just a few seconds left, I remember jumping off the couch, and I remember the tips of my finger touching the ceiling. And then I remember collapsing into the carpet with tears, hot tears coming out of my face when freaking Christian Laettner turns around like, Rick Pitino, what are you thinking? You have to guard the out-of-bounds man. That's one of the things we learned, right? You put your biggest guy on the out-of-bounds guy. You don't let him just throw it up the court. It doesn't matter if there's two seconds left. We're all professional We're all professional basketball coaches now. But we love stories. We love it when when the underdog wins. And... It's one of the great things about the scripture, and it's one of the really great things about the story that we have this morning. Um, Gideon is like the ultimate comeback guy; he's the ultimate zero who becomes a hero. He's the ultimate nobody who becomes somebody. And uh, this morning's story is is the is one of the best. It's one of the best narratives for this for this idea of a long shot. Um, one of the other things I know about people before we get into our text this morning is not only do we, do we like stories, and not only do we look for ways of weaving the events of our life into some sort of cohesive narrative, but one of the other things we do is that we dream about, we dream about being a hero. Everybody in here does, um, and we dream about perhaps being the kind of person who could one day be the comeback woman. Be the comeback guy who wins a victory that no one thinks is going to happen and bringing justice into the earth. We 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 actually everyone dreams about this stuff. Um I've talked to lots of people in my life and one of the things that I've that I've never found yet is I've never found someone who was hoping to be mediocre. Like no one turns to their wife at, in the morning and goes, "You know, babe, what I'm really dreaming for in the next five years is that I could just be like maybe a little below average and that, you know, that I just, I'm just i hoping to have no impact. I'm just hoping to breathe and maybe eat some cereal and I'm hoping at the end of my days that no one really has anything to say and that I have no impact and then it's just over. We're not wired that way. We're, we're wired for something more. And it's one of the reasons I really love this church is because um, at the Vineyard we're, we're dreamers of dreams, and and people here have only begun, I believe only begun to begin to awaken to the reality that God wants to take really small and insignificant people like you and I, Gideons. We're just a room full of Gideons, really insignificant people, full of fear and anxiety, and He wants to execute justice in the earth by partnering with people like us. And it's one of the things I love about this particular community. So here's what we've got this morning. We got a great story. Uh, it's definitely It's definitely a long shot, Uh, and this is the part where Gideon begins to engage the Midianites in actual battle. Because some of us maybe haven't been here for our series, I want to quickly catch us up. Gideon is essentially a nobody, and at this time, the Midianites have oppressed Israel for seven years, and they've they've oppressed them in a in a particular way. The way they've done it is, uh, they let Israel essentially do whatever they want, Um, live your life, sow your crops weed your garden, water your garden, and at the end, when it comes time to harvest, the Midianites come in with great armies and they take everything they have, and um, you can imagine how deflating that would be. Um, it, it's made doubly worse by the fact that in these days, there is no Kroger. So when the Midianites come in and they grab your crops that you've worked all year long, there is nothing else. That's it. You When, they, when the dust cloud leaves with Midianites, um, all your hopes of having anything to eat left as well. So, there's a lot of anxiety there. And when we engage Gideon in Judges chapter 6, our first picture of Gideon is he is in a wine press threshing wheat. And how many of you know that you don't thresh, thresh wheat in a wine press? And the reason that Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine, wine press is because he's afraid. He's down and he is hiding, and he's got this little bit of crop, and he's trying to hide it from the Midianites. And that's always what fear does fear will cause you to work twice as hard for half as less. And, it, it, and he's in this place of anxiety, he's in this place of fear, and he's a national symbol, by the way, because the angel of the Lord comes to him, and it's pre-incarnate Jesus. And when the angel of the Lord shows up, he says to Gideon, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Meanwhile, he's in a wine press threshing wheat. And in the scripture, the wine press is always a place of judgment. So he's a national symbol for judgment, fear, anxiety, and oppression. And the Lord comes to him and says... The Lord's with you, mighty warrior. And at that point, this amazing series of events begins to take place, and Gideon begins to get set free of fear. He's an archetype for being set free of fear and being uh, led into the battle with the Lord. And um, so a few other important things have happened. After the wine press moment, Gideon tears down the altars of Baal that are at his at his dad's house. Kind of a big deal. And then after that the Lord says, well, I'm ready for you to go into battle, and Gideon says, I'm not sure about this, and he does the fleece thing, which he probably shouldn't have done, and then and then we come to this, alright? I want to read this story to you. This is the ultimate underdog story. Gideon has, right before this, has gathered 32,000 troops to go fight the Midianites, who have an army of 135,000, and then this happens, and it gets lots worse. So early in the morning, Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all his men camped At the spring of Herod, the camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Mora, And the Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men, I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave the Mount of Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If you say, if I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water, and there the Lord told him a very strange thing. Separate those who lapped the water with their tongues as a dog from those who kneel down to drink. 300 men drank from the cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. And the Lord said to Gideon, With 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. This sounds like a great plan. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept 300, who took over the provisions and the trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below them in the valley. Um, a couple things. So before this episode happens, Gideon has an army of 30,000 And after this episode, he's got an army of 300. The army that they're about to go lay hold of is an army of 135,000. When, it, when Gideon is left with 300, that means that the odds are stacked against him, 450 to 1. How many of you know you don't win military struggles by thinning your army down and making the odds worse? Like, like I'm not a general. I've never been to West Point. I, I mean, I know how to shoot guns. I've killed a few things in my life. Never a person. Praise the Lord. A- anyway... But how many of you know it's just not great strategy to be like, well, we're already outnumbered. Let's just let's just make it really outnumbered. No. Except that's what the Lord wanted to do. It's maybe the most bizarre battle plan ever. And I love in verse one a couple of things because they're important. Um, in verse one it says, "Early in the morning, Jerubbabel. And do you guys remember this this name, Do You remember where he got it? He got it after he tore down the altars of Baal, right? And the name means, let Baal contend with him. The men came to kill him, and he had torn down the altars, and his dad says, no, if Baal's God, let Baal contend with him, right? That's what, that's what his name means. And one of the things that the, that the author of the scripture here is trying to tell us is, that there's, it's a foreshadowing, that there is about to be a victory, just as a, just as there was a victory when he tore down the altar. Now, I also want you to understand this that this is not simply a literary device so that we might know what's about to happen okay this is an actual thing that happens i believe in the spirit realm and what I, what i mean by that is this is that we carry victory with us okay so when you have a victory with god it, it's not just a uh, it's not just a victory that sits in time and space in a particular moment never to never to escape or affect other moments every victory you have with god actually comes with you and every moment and encounter you have not only changes you in that moment, but it actually comes with you into present moments and moments in the future. Does this make sense? So if you remember uh, in the book of Genesis when Jacob wrestled with the angel, what happened? A couple things. Number one, Jacob got a new name, Israel, and he got a limp, right? And he became a prophetic declaration that he had wrestled with God and with men and had overcome. Um, God does things with us. So when we begin to move with the Lord, when we begin to obey the Lord with little things... Victory actually comes onto our life and we actually have a foundation for future victory, if that makes sense. So one of the things the scripture is trying to tell us here. The other thing I want you to notice here is that it says that the men camped in the, at the spring of Herod and that word Herod means trembling, um, which is the overarching motif and theme of Gideon's whole life. Uh, Gideon is a man afraid. Gideon is a man of anxiety. And here we have an army and they've camped at the, at the spring, at the fountain of trembling. So the Lord's trying to say something that he wants to do. And what he wants to do is he wants to take an outmanned army and he wants to make them even more outmanned. And he has a reason for wanting to do that. And he says it right here in verse 2. He says, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into your hands or you will boast against me and you'll say that my strength has saved me. I love this moment because none of us would would make a small army smaller can you imagine that if Eisenhower on the night before D-Day invasion in Normandy, Normandy had called all of his generals and said you know what I want to do guys I want to cut the army down to like a thousand all of his generals would look at him and say you're crazy And that's what the Lord tells Gideon. And the thing I think that's really awesome about this moment is that he's telling a scared guy the most scary news ever. Gideon's the most scared guy ever and God gives him the worst news. But he has a reason and he says, if I don't do this, you're going to think that this battle was yours. Um, One of the things I feel like the Lord wants to say to us this morning is is this. It's, It's really simple. It's just that um, it's, actually, it's actually not possible for you to be too small for God to use, but it is entirely possible for you to be too big for God to use. What, what happens if God gives us victory and the net result of our victory isn't freedom, but the net result of our victory ends up becoming self-reliance and self-confidence? something we need to ask ourselves. What if the net result of victory in God isn't freedom, but what if it becomes a kind of blindness and we become self-reliant and self-confident? The thing I want you to understand here that the Lord's getting at is that when He says, I cannot deliver you because you're going to become self-reliant, you're going to think that your own strength has saved you. um, One of the things you should see here is that self-reliance and confidence and this... um, this spirit within a person that would say, we won, we did it, is the exact opposite of fear and trembling. Um, And it's it's really important that we we connect those two and we understand why. Um, The reason we need to connect them is is this. Because there's a kind of blindness that happens when we become afraid. Here's how it works. If, If we're not the sort of people who can come into the battle even if we're afraid even if we're powerfully outnumbered and still see the lord if we can't see the lord in really difficult places if we can't see the lord in really difficult battles if we can't see the lord in really really hard spots we'll be given to fear fear will cause you to be blind And then, because the Lord is good, if He delivers you from a battle where you cannot see Him, on the other side, you will think that it was not Him, but it was you. Does this make sense? The Lord's dealing with root issues here. And so, any place that we enter the battle with great fear, a greater fear than confidence in the Lord, the net result will almost always be on the other side. We do not trust the Lord. He does not win our trust. We actually become puffed up, proud, and self-reliant. In Second Chronicles chapter 26, 15 and 16, King Uzziah had experienced great encounters with the Lord. And this is what it says of him in, in um, verse 15. In Jerusalem, he made devices invented for use of towers, cornered defenses so that soldiers could shoot arrows and hurl large stones from his walls. His fame spread far and wide, for he was greatly helped. And he was greatly helped by the Lord. In greater context here, he was greatly helped by the Lord until he became powerful. But after Uzziah became powerful... His pride led to his downfall and he was unfaithful to the Lord. If we can't see the Lord in difficult times, if we can't find the Lord in hard battles, if we can't find the Lord in our toughest moments, if we give ourselves to fear, if He delivers, we will become self-reliant and actually become people who are further away from Him. So God is digging down to the roots here, all the way down. And I love the way that this story is told and I hate it all at the same time. Um, I hate it because uh, God is taking just 300 men and he's going to go rout an army of 135,000. I hate it because what it does is, is it shows us one of God's favorite ways to work. And God loves to work um, by taking really, really difficult circumstances and flipping them. The only problem is, is you don't know when he's going to flip them and you don't know how he's going to flip them. But he likes to work in your life like that. I hate that. I have totally hate it. I've seen it in my own life. He's done it over and over again. I mean, how many of you how many of you have been like in the worst spot like ever only to at the very last minute the Lord pull something out? It's so uncomfortable. And you know what's funny is even after the Lord does this a time or two in your life, it doesn't become less com- like less anxious the next time. It's like I it's so this is one of the hardest things to learn, but it's one of the Lord's favorite ways. So I hate this story for that reason. But then I also love it at the same time because I love it because what it's saying to us is it's right in line with the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of heaven it has a different nature. The kingdom of heaven is not built upon the precepts that the rest of the world works on where if you have the most people and the most money then you win. Like most people, most money in the world is the final answer. But in the kingdom of heaven just a few people and no money is the final answer so long as you have God. In the kingdom of heaven tiniest seed tiniest seed the mustard seed becomes the biggest tree in the garden in the kingdom of heaven the yeast one pinch of yeast will leaven the entire dough in the kingdom of heaven eight eight pound eight ounce baby jesus shows up i mean and we all realize that jesus didn't have to come as eight pound eight ounce baby jesus god was under no contract with anyone to come as a baby he could have come as a full-grown man If God could have come as a full-grown man but didn't come as a full-grown man, then he's telling us his preferences. And his preferences are that things start small and they grow because God has this knack for liking to do things in such a way that if you want to overlook it or not see it, you'll have plenty of opportunity to do so. Same thing here. What army of 135,000 would be afraid of an army of 300? No one. But it's the way the Lord works. One of the other things that's working against us is our American democratic mindset. It's warping our brains. Um, I want to say a couple things. Number one, America's great. Number two, I love it. Uh, I've been to a lot of other places in the world, and there's really no place like America. I love it. It's my home. Praise the Lord. But the other thing I want to say is... That America and democracy and the form of government we have and the way things work is not the kingdom of heaven. It's not even close. Uh, one of the things that happens is, if you grow up an American, is we're taught that uh, we're taught some basic principles of of democracy, and one of them is this this deal that that democracy is the rule of the masses, right? Well, number one, it isn't. Uh, the American president is almost never voted into by a majority but one of the things that happens is, is we begin to lay hold of principles and precepts as though they were the kingdom of God and we become deceived into thinking that in order to win we have to have a majority it almost never happens most presidents are not voted into office by a majority furthermore some of the biggest most radical social changes that are happening in America right now are not the will of the majority it's just a motivated view it's a motivated view we need to have our mind renewed there. Because the truth is you don't have to have it all right now. You don't have to hold you don't have to have the whole plan. And in fact, God's not going to give you the whole plan. Bad news. God's going to give you part of the plan, but He will not give you the whole plan. Uh, God's going to ask you to do things and He will not give you all the resources. God will send you in a direction and He will not tell you the destination. Um, God will give you a promise and He will not tell you the day it will be fulfilled. Uh, God will begin to move in your life, and when He does, at the beginning, you'll have just a promise, a directive, and, and maybe, maybe the resources could fit in your one hand. If the Lord has told you something, and if you don't have all the resources, and if you don't have the final plan, you're in a great spot. If you feel like you have everything you need, you should tremble. And then verse 9 and 10. gets really interesting. So, the most afraid guy in all the world has his army taken away from him. And then verse 9, the Lord comes to him during the night and he says get up and go down against the camp because I'm going to give it into your hands and then maybe the sweetest verse in Gideon's whole life but if you're afraid go down to the camp with your servant Pura. the reason this is so sweet is because the first test that the Lord gave the men in dividing out the army was what if you're afraid go home Right? Apparently Gideon stayed. But now the Lord comes back and says, if you're afraid. I thought we were already through this, right? How many of you have ever realized that when you're overcoming things, that you almost never overcome your thing in one moment? You almost never overcome your thing in one moment. In fact, you almost never overcome your thing in ten moments. Um, if it takes you a hundred moments to overcome your thing, it doesn't mean the Lord isn't with you. It might mean the Lord is powerfully with you. It just may mean that it's hard. Not too hard for Him, just hard for us. Let me bring it into the room a minute you're not going to overcome your deal in one moment. Uh, Some people in the room are powerfully crippled by fear and anxiety and you really relate to Gideon. Um, You're probably not going to overcome fear and anxiety in one moment. Have Heidi Baker pray for you 10 times. Ain't going to happen. And I think you should get Heidi to pray for you. But it's not it's it's not the magic key. Um, not only that, uh, some of us in the room are powerfully addicted to prescription pain pills and pornography, uh, and some of us are just addicted to being uh, mean mean people. You're just like you you actually get it fuels you to be a little bit snarky. That's most I, I'm really I'm, I'm addicted to being a little snarky. I'm in recovery. I'm trying to get better, but. I've even had encounters with the Lord about snarkiness, and I'm still very snarky. We're getting there. I'm less snarky than I used to be. Yeah, you're probably not going to overcome your issue in one moment. And the other thing that I want you to notice about overcoming, because Gideon's story is is a story about overcoming, is this, that God comes to us when he's beginning to deliver us from things he comes to us in a myriad of ways and none of them are necessarily the magic bullet so God comes to Gideon with a powerful uh, encounter and the very first time that Gideon gets called out it's Jesus standing in front of him and by the way it's not it's not uh, like some sort of a, a dream it's not a mirage it's not spirit Jesus if Gideon had touched him he would have held him it was pre-incarnate Jesus it was the angel of the Lord and it's the big T and the big L and it's it's Jesus and there's Gideon and he's in the wine press with him and the Lord says the Lord is with you mighty warrior how many of y'all would like to have an encounter with Jesus I, I would love to have I. how many of you know that how many of you didn't I, I don't I hope you realize this that you could have an encounter with Jesus and you may not get over the issue that the Lord wants to deliver you from in that one moment like, in the vineyard, we pray for encounter. We believe in encounter. But I want to tell you that encounter is not the only way, and it probably won't be the final way that the Lord leads you to take you out. Uh, sometimes sometimes we, we get locked into almost, um, if I can call it this, it's charismatic magical thinking, and it goes like this. Uh, well... You know, I have an issue, and so I need to get, like, the guru to pray for me. And then after the guru prays for me, I won't have the issue anymore. And then you're like, three days, you're pretty good. And then you find out, I still got the issue. And you go home, and you, like, punch your hand through the wall. And now you've got, like, a broken wrist and your issue. <clears throat> it's incredibly frustrating. You're like, Lord, I thought you were working in my life. And the Lord's like, I am. I am. So it starts with encounters with Jesus. And then God begins to work with Gideon in so many different ways. And then look at this. In verse 9, during the night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up. I want you to notice that it doesn't say that that the angel of the Lord came to Gideon face to face and told him to get up. What is this encounter? It might have been a dream. But I don't even think it was a dream because I don't think Gideon slept at all that night. There's an army out in front of him. He's got 300, and the Lord's telling him to go over there. I don't think Gideon slept at all. I think this was a really subtle impression. It, it might be what we would consider that internal, audible discussion that you have with God. Anybody ever have those internal, audible discussions with God? Like, you can't prove it. You can't show it. You just know it. It's on the inside. You're like, you can't wait. There's somebody talking to you. I'm having thoughts, but they're not my thoughts because I don't think like this. Like I would never tell myself, get up and go down there. Right? How did it happen? So the leadership of God in Gideon's life has begun to change, like it has become quieter and more subtle. And by the way, it's the same Lord. We need to have a we need to have room in our theology and in our expectation for a God who encounters and a God who leads really subtly. It's both. It's not. It's not either or. And one of the things that I, I felt like I really needed to tell the Vineyard this morning is, uh, God is not always going to lead you loudly. He is wanting to draw us into higher levels of trust. And one of the reasons He gets quieter is so that He might cause you to trust Him more. It's going to take some more faith. It's going to take. It's going to. You're going to have to step out into that area where there are no necessarily guarantees. You're just going to have to believe me. Trust me. It's called faith. God is not always going to lead us loudly. The main way that i found that God leads people is through the quiet. We pray for encounter. I believe encounter. I've had encounters and I want more encounters. But the main way that the Lord leads His people is still small voice. And we might ask ourselves, why is God leading people through still small voice? Well, I don't know if you're aware of this, but but the still small voice, um, that's the language of love. The whisper is the language of love. Every night in bed, I lay close to my wife, and we whisper things to each other. And the things that we whisper while we're in bed are the most tender, intimate, and special things that we talk about. Um, I don't lay in bed with my wife and shout at her. It's awkward. It's awkward. So we'll have encounters with the Lord that are loud, but then He is going to invariably turn the volume down in your life. And there will be seasons where it is though if your expectation is encounter only, you will think God left you. He has not left you. Uh, There's two things that I've noticed about this kind of a duality and a reality. Um, Number one, there are certain people, and probably in the room, who are really open to and jazzed about a God who would encounter, and you're really upset and not really all that thrilled about a God who would whisper. And then there are other people in the room who are like, I'm really open to, and I'm pretty excited about a God who whispers. I'm just not as excited about a, a, a God who, a God who encounters. If you push all of your eggs in either one of those baskets, you're going to hear, you're going to, you're going to miss a good portion of what the Lord is trying to say to you in your life. The Lord is coming and encountering people all the time and He's whispering. It's not either or, it's both and. And there's a tendency for us to become offended by the other when we become comfortable with the one. A lot of times it'll happen like this. You may be in a season of encounter and one of the things you really need to watch for is that that you don't become judgmental of people who are not having encounter. That is really common. Oh, you're not doing it right. You're not doing it right. God's, you just... You know, go home and have a heaven trip. No. And then the other side of the ball is also true. People who are being led really subtly and led in the quiet, almost like whispering in the dark with your lover, they tend to become offended by people who are having an encounter. Like, why are they doing that? All of those are devices of the enemy to divide his church and to keep his full voice from being heard. And then I love the second part of what the Lord tells him. If you're afraid, go down and attack. But go to the camp and take your servant, Pura. See, walking out our freedom and walking out our calling requires somebody by your side. Gideon is definitely afraid, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but he would not have gone alone. And if he didn't go down there, then he wouldn't have heard the prophetic dream that the Lord had given to the Midianites, and he wouldn't have been encouraged. And if he wasn't encouraged, then he wouldn't have come back and led the troops. And if he didn't lead the troops, then he wouldn't have defeated the enemy. And if he didn't defeat the enemy, then he'd forfeit the reason that he was put on the earth. You need a friend. You need a friend. And, And I see two things here. I see friendship being the key to overcoming overcoming the, the oppression that works in our lives, overcoming fear and anxiety, but I also see friendship being a key to walking in our calling. You need a friend. It's no accident that the Jesus, that Jesus that, it's no accident that the Jesus, <laughs> I love the Jesus. I love you, the Jesus. Um, <laughs> it's no accident that the Jesus sent the disciples out two by two. Cause you need a friend. Uh, one of my favorite stories in the Gospels is Mark chapter two, and that's where there's a lame guy, and Jesus is preaching in a house, and the house is so full that he actually can't get in into the house. And this lame guy has some friends, and they pick him up, and they tear a hole in the house, and they lower Jesus, they lower the guy into Jesus, and Jesus heals him. Now that story is about a lot of things, and most most Bible scholars are going to major on like forgiveness of sin, and then if you're a radical. Like, if you're a radical charismatic, you'll preach healing out of that passage. And the thing that never gets preached is, is friendship. And the truth is, there's an aspect of your healing that you may never get unless you have a friend to carry you to Jesus. Like there's an aspect of being set free from fear and walking in your calling and attacking the Midianites and setting your people free and being a judge and and, and establishing the kingdom of heaven in this region that you will never walk into unless Pura goes with you. Like you need somebody beside you. Like you need a friend. And one of the things I know about this community of people is that there's a lot of friends in here. And one of the things I can tell you is that the people who have friendships in this house are the people who are doing the most. The people who are isolated are the people who are doing the least. And one of the things that happens to people who don't have friends is they get mad at the people who do have friends. And they're like, well, I want to be your friend. Well, you know what? Most people can only have about 10 or 12 good friends. Did you know that? I'm about filled up. Just going to be honest. I love all y'all. I really don't. I've got I've got all the good friends I can have. But here's what you should do: you should go find some other mad, isolated people, and you should be friends with them. And then you'll walk in your calling. I mean, whatever you can come over to my house. But if you're hoping that we're going to be best friends, it probably ain't going to happen. I got my best friends; they're awesome. But you need a best friend. You need you need a best friend. Oh, and by the way, that's sociology. it's a, it's a proven fact. You can only maintain about a dozen intimate relationships. Interesting that Jesus chooses 12. Smart Jesus, He's way ahead of his time. <laughs> I love prophetic stuff. My kids have some game on here and it just it just flashed at me. This message it says Injustice is everywhere, your team is energy is full, go fight. <laughs> mm. See, that's the whisper of the Lord. And that's not just for me, that's for you. Some people are in here like I don't believe it. Okay. That's unbelie- I'm gonna make a screenshot of this. incredible and then the Lord gives I'm scrambled now so Gideon that's his name he goes with his servant Purah worst name maybe ever (laughs) and they go into the camp of the Midianites which is insane okay This is the Gideon who was just a few days ago afraid and in a wine press of the Midianites. And now he's going with one guy right into their camp. See, the Lord's beginning to move in his life, right? He's being set free from fear in a really real real way. And he shows up and it's the middle of the night and they're changing the guard and most of the camp is asleep except for two guys. And they sneak up behind a tent and they they hear one guy tell another guy, he says, I had a dream. The other guy says, well, what's the dream? And he said, well, I had a dream that a little a little loaf of bread rolled down a hill and it crushed crushed a tent and then the other guy says it's none other than Gideon son of Joash he's here to kill us you should read it like for real you should you should actually read it it's so hilarious so the Lord gives them this dream and they hear it and um the dream is, is, is through the roof. Um, and in some ways, it demonstrates the next level of the prophetic. Um, there is a certain level of the prophetic that we are open to and comfortable with and are experiencing here at the Vineyard. Um, one of the things I love about our community is that we're a prophetic community, and we're a prophetic community that uh, doesn't tear each other down but builds each other up. Okay, And we don't major on minors. You know, We're not prophesying the end of the world. We're prophesying... To the person sitting next to us, I'm way more about that. Um, But one of the next level of the prophetic is this: Can you hear the voice of the Lord in the mouth of your enemy? Sometimes the sometimes the Lord is actually speaking through your enemy, and if you don't do what Jesus says, learn to love your enemy. You may not hear him, and you may miss it. So the Lord gives a prophetic dream to his enemy, and Gideon has to be able to hear his enemy. And hear the the voice of the Lord in it, and he's so encouraged. It says, it says in, um, it says that in verse fifteen that when Gideon heard the dream, he was so encouraged that he worshipped the Lord right there. And then he returned to the camp. Uh, and now this is, this is what Gideon does. I want to read some verses to you here. He returns to the camp and he says, "Hey, get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands." And he divided the three hundred men into three companies, and he placed trumpets and empty jars into the hands of all of them. With torches inside, no weapons. I just want to underline that: no weapons, just torches and trumpets. You guys, ever? How would you feel about jumping into an MMA death match with a trumpet? <laughs> Anybody want to? Anyone? Anyone want to go fight that that Brazilian guy, that Victor Belfort, with a trumpet? Guy would take a trumpet. And he would would rake you with it. I mean, he would take it right out of your hands. He would beat you in the face with it. Okay, not a part of the story. He says, watch them. And he says, follow my lead. This is great part, 17. Watch me, follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. Who is this guy? This guy, Gideon, he's transformed. He says, "Uh, when I and all who are with me blow our trumpets... Then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the 300 men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch just after they had changed guard. They blew their trumpets, they broke their jars, they were in their hands. The three companies blew their trumpets and smashed their jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow and they shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And then fear hits the camp and the Midianites end up like hacking each other, like, now, I have a really important question here. When Gideon devises this plan, let's take the 300, let's divide them up, let's give them torches and little jars and trumpets, and let's surround them, let's blow the trumpets, let's smash the jars, and let's wave our torches. Um, where did that plan come from? I know you're tempted to say from Jesus or from God. It actually didn't come from God. The Bible doesn't tell us anywhere that God said, divide them in into 300 and give everybody a trumpet and the Bible doesn't tell us that at all. In fact, yeah, the voices are coming back. <clears throat> From the best we can tell, this is Gideon's plan. Mm-hmm. Sometimes sometimes we are... Um, what the Lord really wants to do is He wants to partner with us and He wants to fill us in. But there will become a moment when the Lord doesn't tell us what to do, and in the moment where He doesn't tell us what to do, what He really wants us to do is do what makes sense. Like, wisdom is a really big deal. Like, in James it says, if you don't have wisdom, you should ask God because He gives it out freely and He doesn't judge you for being stupid. That's what it says. You can read it. in my notes. man there's stuff flying around here in this room this morning I don't even know where, where I'm at. Oh yeah the plan didn't come from Gideon. the plan didn't come from the plan didn't come from the Lord it came from Gideon. the Lord wants to partner with us and he wants to partner with us in a way that that maximizes wisdom so that we might when we don't know what to do if we don't have a clear director from the Lord do the thing that makes sense. Goodness gracious, do what makes sense. And by the way, Gideon's plan, it capitalizes on the fact that he knows that the army of Midian is afraid, right? He heard the dream. I saw a little barley cake roll through and hit the tent. And the other guy says, it's none other than Gideon, son of Joash. He's going to kill us. And the Bible says that the Lord made them afraid. Gideon knew they were afraid, and then he devises a plan where we'll surround them, we'll break our jars, we'll blow our trumpets, that's the sound of war, And we'll wave our torches, and they'll think a great army has surrounded them. And then they started panic hits them, right? Gideon just did what made sense. Like, some of you in the room this morning are frozen because the Lord hasn't told you what to do next. And the thing the Lord really wants you to do next is do what makes sense. Like, he's actually not going to tell you what the next move is. I know that's crazy. Uh, There are a lot of times where Heather and I have been stuck and didn't know what to do next, and and, uh, we prayed. And we asked the Lord, and He didn't tell us what to do next. And then we prayed again, and He didn't tell us what to do next. And then we called the most prophetic person that we know, and they couldn't tell us what the Lord told us to do. And then we would fast, and then He didn't tell us what to do next. And then after months of this going on, then I realized, oh, He's not going to tell us what to do next, so we should just do something. And then we do something, and it works. Yeah. Like, the Lord is not mean. Man, that's the most theological thing I said all morning. The Lord is not mean like some of us think that he has this plan and the plan is like is like this this one particular way and that if and not only does he have the plan but he loves the plan more than he loves us. Sometimes we're tempted to believe that he is more invested in the plan than he is in us and I want to tell you it's not true. The Lord The Lord comes up with plans and His plans are good and they're good because He's good but at the end of the day He loves you more than the plan and there will be a moment when He stops talking and He just wants you to make it up and go with it. Do what makes sense. Have some wisdom. Take some courage. Run with the ball. Throw the ball. Pass the ball. Hit the ball. Take a nap. Go on vacation. Eat a hamburger. Have an ice cream. I have an ice cream every day. I do. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, it's the only thing that makes sense. You can set your watch. Hannah knows this, the staff knows this. You can set your watch by my run to Baskin Robbins. Must be 3 o'clock. Do what makes sense. And at the end of this, the Midian army is trounced. And the thing that we can most assuredly know is, look at this, I love verse 21. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. Who won this battle? It's not a trick question. The Lord won the battle. The Lord is the victor in every battle. He's the victor in every battle. And the crazy thing is, is that the Lord is is willing that other people would get credit, but He's always the victor. Like, don't be fooled. Gideon becomes famous here, but don't be fooled. It was it was the Lord who won this battle. And it doesn't matter what's going on in your life right now, what battle you're in, what, what hard spot you're in, what difficulty you're facing, uh, the strength... Uh, for you to endure and to make it through and to win comes from the Lord and when when it does happen it will be Him. Like this is the main thing that we've got to get this morning is we can't forget the Lord. That's why over and over again the Bible says remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. (sighs) Amen? Amen. My legs are tired so I'm done. doing what makes sense Hmm. hey before we go on this morning is there anybody here who needs to meet Jesus anybody in the room you you don't know Jesus you've never committed to him you've uh, to use the parlance of uh, southern Kentucky uh, you've never been saved anybody in here need to get saved If, if that's you will you just stand up right where you're at anybody here We want to make sure that people have an opportunity to meet Jesus. I know it's scary. Anybody here need to meet Jesus? All right. Hey, why don't everybody stand up and let me pray for you? If there's a ministry team, come on down. Also, while I was preaching, felt like I got a word of knowledge uh, for healing. Uh, anybody in here having uh, issues with your right eye? Like, feels like it's behind your right eye, right here. here. All right, we want to pray for you. These guys right here want to pray for you, for healing. Um, There's there's just grace here for stuff this morning. Yay. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Hey, put your hand on your heart. Lord, thanks for everything you're doing. Uh, Father, thanks for the crazy battles that you send us into. Uh, God, thanks for the way that you continually lead us into victory in Jesus Christ. God, we ask that you would set us free from fear and anxiety. God, we ask that you would set us free from um, not trusting you. God, we ask that you would give us eyes and ears to be able to hear and see you in the battle. That that we might give you the credit after the battle. Father, we ask that you would deliver us from a spirit of self-reliance. Particularly those among us who are gifted. Particularly those among us who are really gifted. God, we ask that you would set us free from a, a spirit of self-reliance and confidence in the flesh. And God, we ask that you would deliver us into confidence in the Spirit and in who you are. God, we also ask that you would uh, give us confidence uh, to believe for encounter. And God, we ask that you would give us confidence to believe in the whisper. And God, we ask that you would give us wisdom for when there's neither. getting heavy in here do you guys feel that thing it was about 10 seconds ago it just got heavier in the room it's a weight um, yeah it's the Lord he, he's it's good